Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking specifically at verses 14 through 21. In these, in these verses, we're going to find Paul picking up a prayer that he started all the way back in verse 1 of chapter 3. So if you look up at, at chapter 3, all the way up in verse 1, Paul begins a prayer. He's, he's explaining to this mainly Gentile audience what he's going to pray for them, but then he was broken off and it had to go on in a side in, in that first part of chapter 3. And so for this reason, he's, he's beginning here in verse 14. It's connected to what, what came before in chapter 3, and it's actually connected up to what came at the end of chapter 2, because at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, for this reason. So it's, it's connected. But, but, but Paul, in these passages, is going is to continue how he prays, reminding these Gentiles, telling them how he prays for them. And what you'll notice, at least what I hope you'll notice this morning, is that in these verses, in verses 14 through 21, Paul lays out specific requests for his reader. And so like in, in, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, we get to listen to Paul in his prayer closet. So he tells us, this is what I pray for other Christians. And so it's going to be informative for us. And what Paul says, what Paul prays for these Ephesian Christians are what I'm calling God-sized prayers. So he prays God-sized prayers for the Christians at Ephesus. And so I want us, as we leave here, to be reminded that we ought to pray God-sized prayers, prayers that only God can accomplish. That's, what, that's how I understand God-sized prayers. Now, now, I feel like I have to qualify this because what is most of the time assumed when you hear the word God-sized prayer, right, if you do a Google search God-sized prayers, you're going to find one sermon that is over and over and over repeated. And that sermon... I listened to it and I read it. It took a lot of perseverance to get through it. But this prayer, the God-sized prayers, meant God's going to give you wealth and prosperity. You just got to break through. Ask God to give you breakthrough. And that God-sized prayer was equated with whatever your heart desires. Ask for it and God's going to bless you and give it to you. That's not what Paul's God-sized prayer is. Okay, So I'm not saying that. That's not a God-sized prayer. Because Paul isn't asking for financial increase. He's not asking for favor. He's not asking for circumstantial changes. Right? So, so, so that sermon, God-sized prayers were, were just to change your circumstances, specifically to give you more money, more worldliness. That, that's what the God-sized prayer was, but that's not what Paul prays. And so when most people pray God-sized prayers, they're only thinking about surface-level circumstantial changes having to do with earthly wealth and prosperity. But that's not the God-sized prayers that Paul prays. Instead... Paul has completely different categories for praying God-sized prayers. So that's what I want us to see. Okay, so I do want us to leave praying God-sized prayers, but a certain type of God-sized prayer. Well, let's read our passage and see what these requests are. What, what are these God-sized prayers that Paul prays? So I'm going to begin reading in verse 14 of Ephesians 3, so you can follow along as I read. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. So Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray as, as we begin this morning. Father, we join with our brother, the Apostle Paul, and we acknowledge that you are able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine. And so, Lord, we ask you to do things through this sermon, through this passage, through this inspired text. We ask you to do work in our lives that that we don't even know needs to be done in our lives. We ask that by your Spirit, you would give us strength to understand these truths and give us strength to live the lives that we're called to live. We are dependent on you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So here's our, our outline. We're going to work through it. It's a, it's a short passage, and there's, there's only three sections. So we're going to work through, we're going to see Paul's address, so, so the beginning of his prayer there in verses 14 through 15. Then we're going to see his requests, which, which some say it's one request, some say it's multiple. So we're going to cover all the bases and just say requests in verses 16 through 19. Then thirdly, his doxology, or his benediction there as he closes. So let's begin there in verse 14 with his address. So look there in verse 14. Paul begins, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And so he connects his prayer with what preceded. So for this reason, Paul continues this address by describing the posture of his prayer. So you notice he says, he says, for this reason I bow my knees. So Paul says, this is my posture when I pray. I, I bow my knees. Now, now, I'm not saying that this is the only prescribed way to pray in the Bible, but this certainly is a way, isn't it? I mean, Paul says, I bow my knees. I don't think this is, this is hypothetical. I think Paul is saying, I get on my knees and I pray this for you. I think Paul is, is giving us a, a reason, a, a prescribed way that we could pray. I mean, here's Paul, the mighty apostle, the one who had made known the mystery that was hidden for ages to the Gentiles, this, this one who opened the door of the gospel of the Gentiles, this mighty man, he bowed his knees before God. I mean, that's his posture in prayer. I bowed my knees. And so I think Paul's example instructs us. Bowing in posture is a reminder of the posture. Bowing in prayer is a reminder of the posture that we should take before the Lord. And so tomorrow morning, if you wake up to pray, get on, if you're able, get on your knees. Right? That, that reminds you, I am low. I mean, it's like the tax collector in the parable. Right? He, he beats his breast and he looks down. Posture should match that of prayer. That's why it's helpful to bow our heads so we're not distracted. We want to focus. But more importantly than the posture, I think here, as Paul begins, is who Paul is praying to. Who does he say? Look there how he continues in verse 14. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And so Paul says, I, I bow my knees before the Father. This, this is the Father, Paul says. If you remember Jesus in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, he says, pray this way. How does the Lord's Prayer begin? Our Father. And so Paul begins with, with, with the term Father. But notice how he describes the Father, the one from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named. And so, whereas in, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, pray our Father. So, so Jesus there specifically says, as my followers, as those who are, who, are, who are united to me through faith, you have God as your Father. So pray our Father. That's not the case here as Paul describes the Father. So, so whereas the Father in the Lord's Prayer is clearly a reference to God as the Father of Christians, of the followers of Jesus, here in verse 14, the Father, the title Father, is used much more broadly. It's like later in Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul will say there's one God and Father of 
all. And so in this broad sense, which I think is what he's using here in verse 15, God is considered the father of all of creation, everything, all. It's, it's a broad reference. And the point that Paul is making, I think, is by referring, by referring to God as the father of all, Paul is saying, I am praying to the God who is sovereign over all things. It's a point of, of, of authority, I think Paul is making. I bow my knees before the God of all things. The Father, the, the source of everything. So I think Father here is a, is a comprehensive, sovereign claim. God is the one, notice how he says, from whom every family is named. So, so named, right? When you name someone or something, you have authority to do so. When Adam is created, right? He's the, he's the pinnacle of creation. The animals are come before him, and he does what to them? He names them because he's above them. He has authority over them. This is why when, when, when Jacob is wrestling, tell me your name, right? That's, I, I want to conquer you. I want to have authority over you with, with, remember, the angel of the Lord. So the right to name something assumes authority. And so Paul says that I'm praying to the Father from whom every family or every group in heaven and on earth is named. His point is that God is God over all things. The one who created the source of everything. And so as Paul's writing to this Gentile audience, his point wouldn't have been lost on them. I mean, think every day they go to the market. They walk by the temple of Artemis, the, 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 one of the wonders, ancient wonders of the, of the world, this huge temple to this goddess of love, and they walk by. And, and so now Paul's saying, hey, hey, I know your, your culture is filled with all these false gods, with all, all these idols. Well, well, I'm not praying to one of those. I'm praying to the one who is above all of those. And so as Gentile Christians, as they've come to faith in Christ, I'm sure they wonder, well, how do I know that, that this is the God? Uh, I mean, look at our city. At every corner, there's, a, there's an idol worship temple. And Paul is saying, I'm praying to the one who is over all of them, who has all authority, the one who created all things. In, in other words, I'm bound to the one who, whose authority cannot be thwarted. I mean, just think about the difference that this makes in the life of the Gentiles. Think about the difference this should make in our life. Paul is praying to the God who has authority over all things. And so in, in the letter to the Ephesians, especially as we get into chapter 6, we're going to see all principalities and powers are subject to this one. So notice he says all the families in heaven and on earth. So, so this is every family, every grouping. God is over them. Everything is subject to him. Which means that when Paul asks this God, this Father of all, to do something... There is nothing in all of creation save God himself that can prevent this request from being granted. Do you realize that? I bow my knees before the Father of all. Which leads to the first point of application, I think, regarding God-sized prayer, which is this. We ought to pray God-sized prayers because of who God is. We ought to pray God-sized prayers because we pray to the God who is Father of all things. One who created this world. There's no force Believer, hear this. There's no force in heaven or on earth that can sever your line of communication with God the Father. Nor is there any force in heaven or on earth that can prevent God from answering your prayers. He's the Father of all. We ought to pray God-sized prayers because we're praying to God. I mean, maybe you've heard this before, but, but this is a good question. If God answered all of your prayers, what would be different? How would your life be different? Would your life be different? Would, would this church be different? 
Would this city be different? This nation be different? What would change if God answered all your prayers? That's a good question. It's a convicting question. It's a good question because it seems to me that too often, it's not that we don't pray, though, though sometimes that is the case, right? Sometimes we don't pray. But more than that, it seems to me that we pray like the doubting man of James 1, where we ask, but we, but we ask not really believing that God can do what we're asking for. But the reality is we pray to a God for whom nothing is impossible. And so Paul would have us know that when we pray, we pray to the God from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Therefore, we pray, we ought to pray God-sized prayers because we are praying to the God who is over all. Well, after this address, Paul moves into the request there, verses 16 to 19. So let's look at these specific requests that he makes. Verses 16 through 19. So as we look at these verses, we're going to look at the specific request, but, but, but as we... As, as we jump into them, the, the big picture, Paul's big picture request, the main idea of his request is clear. So at the outset, let me just tell you, Paul wants his readers to be strengthened by God's Spirit. So, so strength is the theme here. He wants them to be strengthened by God's Spirit so that they may know the presence and love of Christ. So, so strength is the main request. Paul wants them to have spiritual strength, and the reason is because Paul here is going to close the first half of the letter to the Ephesians. And as he transitions into the second half, right, he's going to give them a lot of commands. He's going to tell them how they're to live the Christian life. And so before he launches into a bunch of imperatives, he's going to say, I'm going to pray that God would strengthen you for all that you need so that you can do what I'm fixing to call you to do. In other words, Paul's prayer for spiritual strength is going to be the foundation for all the moral commands that he's going to make throughout the rest of this letter. So the ethic of chapters 4 through 6 has its foundation in the prayer at the end of chapter 3. And so Paul wants these Ephesians to know, if you're going to make any progress in your Christian life, any spiritual progress, if you want to grow one ounce, you better know that you are in desperate need of God's strength. You better know that you're in desperate need of God's strength. And so, so these prayers that Paul prays stop us, as we read them, in our self-sufficient tracks. They cause us to pause and ask, do I recognize my need for God? Do I recognize my need for His power at work in my spiritual life? I mean, I think, think about what Paul's asking for. Right? So, so if you don't know, I'm going to tell you what he's going to call them to, the imperatives that he's going to call them to. And so he's asking for strength to carry out these imperatives. He isn't praying for strength, for supernatural, God-given, spirit-given, spirit-produced strength, so that these Christians may raise the dead, or heal the sick, or multiply the loaves, or anything like that. That's not why he asked that they have strength. Instead, Paul's praying for supernatural, God-given, spirit-supplied strength, so that they might love one another, that they might tell the truth. That they might not be angry or bitter. That the wives would submit to their own husbands. That the husbands would love their wives as Christ loved the church. These are the things that Paul is going to call them to in the following chapters. So these are the things that, God's, or that Paul is telling them, you must have God's help to do these things. And my point is that God-sized prayers are necessary for these seemingly ordinary acts. Right? Tell the truth. Really? Do I need God's help to do that? 
right? Our self-sufficient self says, I got it. But that's, that's not the reality that we live in. These mundane Christian characteristics, these mundane Christian acts require supernatural power. An inch of spiritual growth requires miles of spiritual power. An ounce of spiritual growth requires tons of spiritual power. Any progress in the Christian life requires power, power, wonder-working power that can only come from God himself. Which is why, look there in verse 16, and notice where Paul's first request finds its supply. So verse 16 that he may grant you to be strengthened, uh, ver, the beginning of verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. He says, I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant you. So, so do you see where Paul looks for provision for the answer to these prayers? The resources available to fulfill Paul's petition, petitions are limitless because this is the God who is rich and limitless in his ability to provide. His glory, because of who he is, his nature, this God can meet the needs of his people. So Paul says, I'm asking that according to the riches of his glory. Request one, I ask that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that's his first request. According to the riches of his glory, I ask that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So here's Paul's request. I, I pray that you might have strength and power in your inner man, your inner being. And he's praying that this strength and power would be given through God's Spirit. Paul implies that only God's Spirit can accomplish this. Now, now look at verse 17. And so as he continues, most translations say, there at the beginning of verse 17, so that, which conveys the idea that so when the Spirit does this, I'm praying that the Spirit will do this, verse 17, so that this will happen, right? That's, that's, that's what the translation conveys. That's the idea it conveys. But I don't think that's what Paul means here. So Paul's not saying, I pray that the, the Spirit would give you strength, strength, so that then Christ will dwell in your hearts. I don't, I don't think that's the relationship here. I think what Paul means in verse 17 is to explain how verse 16 happens. So I, I think verse 16 and 17 are parallel experiences. And so I think verse 17 explains the manner in which the Spirit strengthens the believer. So verse 16, Paul says this, he prays that the Spirit would strengthen his readers in their inner being. And then verse 17, Paul explains, and this happens, the Spirit does this by making the presence and power of Christ known to you. So you see, I think they're parallel. In other words, the prayer that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith is parallel to the prayer that they may be inwardly strengthened by the Spirit of God. And so the ministry of the Spirit... And, and the person of Christ are inseparable. So that the presence of the Spirit in the believer is never separated from the presence of Christ. So that Christ dwells in the heart of the believer. How? By His Spirit. So they're parallel things. It's, it's the same thing. Inner being and heart. Right? He wants them to be strengthened in their inner man. So to be empowered by the Spirit in the inner person means that Christ Himself dwells in their hearts by the ministry of the Spirit. And the result, then, of this strengthening, this ministry of the Spirit in this presence of Christ, is, is that, that these believers would be rooted and grounded in love. You see there at the end of verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be, 
rooted and grounded in love. So again, here's another translation decision. So I think rooted and grounded in love comes with what proceeds instead of what proceeds, what comes after. So I think he's saying that Christ may be dwelling in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love. And so I think his, his point is that as the, the Spirit strengthens as, as, and as Christ dwells in their hearts, these Christians are being reminded and reassured of God's great love for them. And so in Paul's estimation, this whole strengthening process that he's praying for in their inner man, this whole experience, results in the revelation of God's love for them. These Christians are being reminded and reassured of God's great love for them. Right? This is something the Spirit does. Right? So Romans 5.5. 5. Paul says that God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Spirit who's been given to us. And so what we see here, not only is the presence of the Spirit and the indwelling of Christ in one's heart through faith is encouragement and reminding us of God's great love for us, but also we see that the presence of the Spirit and the indwelling of Christ in one's heart is evidence of God's great love for us. And so for the one who puts their faith in Jesus, right, the person who puts their faith in Jesus is the one who receives the Spirit. And so faith in Jesus and reception of the Spirit, they're they're two sides of the same coin. And so this one who puts their faith in Jesus, who, who is given the Spirit, is the one who's come to know the love of God for them. It doesn't happen apart from hearing and responding to the love of God that's been shown. Right? This is the gospel. I mean, to put the same truth negatively, if you don't know the story of God's love for you, if you don't know that God sent his son to die on the cross and to rise again three days later, if you don't know that, you're not going to put your faith in Jesus and you're not going to have the spirit of God dwelling in you. And so a brief application here is, are you here this morning? Do you know the love of Christ for you? Do you know the love of God that's been shown in Christ Jesus? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you received his spirit? I mean, the good news for you this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, the good news for you is that God shows his love for you by sending Jesus to die in your place. To pay your price so so that your guilt, your condemnation that stood over you, that weighed you down, that nailed your coffin, your guilt was paid for by Jesus on the cross. In the state of your guilt and condemnation, in your state of spiritual death, God sent his son. While you were his enemy, he sent him. In the motivation for him sending the son, do you know why God sent his son to die? It was love. God's love motivated him to move into action. His love motivated the son laying down his life. God loved the world in this way. He sent his only son that whoever, whosoever, anyone who believes in Jesus will have, possess, experience eternal life. It's because God loved the rebellious world that had turned its back on him. And so if you're not a Christian, you need to hear that this morning. You can know the love of God for you that's been shown in Christ by turning from your sins and putting your faith in Jesus. And he will give you his spirit, which will testify to God's love for you. Well, after establishing here that these Christians, having received Christ, having been rooted and grounded in love, Paul then moves to a second request there in verse 18. So look there, verse 18 so being rooted, grounded in love, so, so I'll supply in verse 18, so that 
you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. So you see there in verse 18. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is, do you see those dimensions? Breadth, length, height, and depth. Now, you're, depending on, again, what translation you use, the verse here in the original Greek doesn't supply the object for those four dimensions. So that the request literally reads that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. So there's no, there's no object. Do you see how that's a problem? Well, what's he talking about? Now, if you have the NIV, right, the NIV supplies the object. So the NIV, if you have the NIV, it's going to say this, that you may grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So do you see how they supply the object for the dimensions? The original doesn't, doesn't supply that object. That's the NIV translation team saying, we think this is what it means. Now, I don't think that's wrong in the general sense, but I don't think that's what Paul's referring to here in verse 18. Now, just so you know, there, there's, there's unending suggestions as to what Paul is referring to. Right? So, so, so when the object isn't provided, people think, well, let's, let's provide it. Right? And so, so there are a number of suggestions. So some, some say the love of Christ, well, as possible. Some say it's the mystery of salvation itself, that, that as Paul's just at the end of, through the end of chapter 2 talked about this mystery, they're saying, well, that's the, the, the dimensions are to the mystery of salvation itself. Some say it's the mystery of God's wisdom, or the, the dimensions of God's wisdom, which are ever-extending in every direction. Uh, one that I thought was amusing, almost all of the church fathers, when they read this, do you know what they think it's referring to, these dimensions? Right? They say it's, it's talking about the cross of Jesus. The, the beams that go in every direction. That's what Paul's talking about, they say. I don't, I don't think that's right. I think that's a cool picture. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. So, so I think here, what Paul's referring to with these dimensions, I think he's, he's going back to, which, which has been a theme throughout, is a reference to the power of God. I think that's his prayer. I mean, this was his prayer back in chapter 1. I think Paul wants his readers to know the great power of God that is, that is at work on their behalf. I think he wants them to know that this is the God and Father of all creation. His power is available and at work in your life, Christian. His request is that they would know with all the saints, did you notice that phrase? With all the saints, Jew and Gentile alike, he wants them to know the unlimited dimension of God's power. Paul wants them to have the strength, to know the strength of God's power at work with him. Do you, do you, hear, do you see that? That you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Sorry, verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and I'm saying of God's strength. So I want you to have strength to know the strength that's unending. I think that's what Paul's saying here. He wants to remind them, he wants them to have the strength, to know the strength of God's power at work in them. And then not only that, notice how he continues there. Along with the strength to know God's power, Paul also prays here that they would have strength to know the love of Christ. Look there at verse 19. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So Paul says, I'm praying for strength that you might know this knowledge Paul's praying for is a knowledge that surpasses knowledge. Do you see the irony there? I want you to have knowledge that can't be known. Or I want you to have knowledge that is, that is unexhaustible. And so this is, in its irony, this is a God-sized prayer, isn't it? Paul asked that these readers would know the love of Christ, which in all actuality can never be fully known. I mean, I think that's what Paul's saying. He's praying that they would know the love of Christ, which can never be fully known. He wants to communicate to them 
that just like God's power is limitless, so also is the love of Christ. I mean, this is true, isn't it? Right? Th- think about, think about the, the, the quantity of the love of Christ. The love of Christ, is, it, it's, it's never fully exhaustible by us. We can never know the extent, the quantity of the love of Christ. If you're a Christian, right, it's your privilege and your duty to grow in your knowledge of the love of Christ for the rest of your days. Right? That's a pool whose depth you'll never get to the bottom of. I mean, you ought to just, just stop some mornings and meditate on the love of Christ for you. Just meditate on it. It is a knowledge that is unknowable. It surpasses knowledge. And so Paul's point is that it's a God-given knowledge. I want you to know something that you can't know unless God helps you know. Right? We cannot be as spiritually mature as we should be unless we're empowered by God to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. And so it's not just, just intellectual or, or informational knowledge that he's praying for. That, that, that's not what he's praying for. That wouldn't be a God-sized prayer. And so, so you should hear me say, you can't read your Bible enough, you can't listen to enough sermons, you can't take enough seminary classes, you can't do anything enough that will guarantee growth in the knowledge of the love of Christ. You, you can't do it enough. Nothing can ensure that you'll do that. The only way for you to grow in this knowledge of the love of Christ is if God empowers you to do so. Did you know that? Only God can do this. You can't make it happen. But God can, which is why you ought to pray for these things. You ought to pray for God to give you an increasing knowledge of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. And then thirdly here, Paul's final request in the second part of verse 19 we see, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so his prayer here, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love. Next request, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Final request, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And I think this, this final request serves as a summary or a climax of what's come before. And so I think Paul is saying here, as believers are, are strengthened inwardly through God's Spirit when Christ dwells in their hearts, as that happens, as they know in a personal way the, the power of God and the immeasurable love of Christ, Paul assumes, and, and, and the logic works out, that they will be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. In other words, Paul wants Christ to dwell in the hearts of his readers to a greater degree. Right? He wants the Spirit to impart divine strength to them and desires for them to be rooted in the love of Christ. And all this happens, he prays that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. He wants them to experience the reality of God's nearness to them, that, that they would be filled with his fullness, that they would know of God's commitment to them. And so he prays that they would be filled with this. Now, now several commentators, and I, I, think, I think this is right, they'll suggest that Paul's taking this language of fullness from, from the Old Testament. So, so think about the Old Testament, there's, there's several places where God's fullness fills something. Right? So if you think about the tabernacle in Exodus 40, or if you think about Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 8, or in Ezekiel's vision in chapter 43, in all those instances, there's a dwelling place that after the, the, the dwelling is completed, God's glory 
fills the temple or fills the tabernacle. No one can go in because God's presence fills it. And that's the imagery that's conveyed throughout the Old Testament. When God's glory fills his dwelling place, it's evident that God is there. And so Paul, I think, here is saying that I'm praying that you people, Gentiles and Jews alike, you new group, new humanity, this new temple would be filled with the fullness of God, that God's presence would would just be so full in you. I think that's his prayer, and and that happens by God answering these these prior requests. That's his prayer. He, He wants the new temple to be filled with God's glory. He wants it to be a place where God's glory is clearly on display for all to see, which then leads him to the final two verses of our chapter. Our final section, the doxology, verses 20 and 21. And so in a fitting conclusion to these, to these requests, to these prayers, Paul closes in this doxology, in this benediction, by, by reminding the reader, readers of two things. There's two things, two points he makes here in these last verses. First, in verse 20, he reminds them that God cannot be asked for anything that's beyond his ability to provide. Do you notice that there in verse 20? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, to him who is able to do far more than we could ever ask or think. And so he's saying, you're never going to ask God for too much. That's what he's saying. His capacity for giving far exceeds your capacity for asking. Or even more than that, not even asking, thinking. You can't think of anything too great to ask that God can't do. That's what he says here in verse 20. And the reason, Paul says, that God can do far more abundantly than all we ask or think is because of the power at work within us. That was all the way back in chapter 1. Paul says that there's an immeasurably great power that's at work, that's been shown towards us who believe. That's in 119, Ephesians 1. He, he's talking about this, this, this great power that's at work in believers. And so he's saying that, that power that, that raised Jesus to the dead, from the dead and, and ascended him, caused him to be raised to the right hand of the Father, that power, Paul in chapter 1 said, that power's at work in you, and he's, he's reminding them that again. You can't, you can't ask him to do something he can't do because of the power that's at work in you. And then second, what Paul reminds his readers here in verse 21, is that this God, and again, he's going all the way back to chapter 2, this God has put his glory on display. Notice verse 21, to him be the glory in the church. So, so there's a lot of benedictions that will end with to, to him be the glory in Christ throughout all generations or forever and ever. But, but here, because of the context of Ephesians, he adds the church to him be the glory in the church and in Christ forever and ever. And so, so there's this link between the glory of God and the work of Christ in the church that, that cannot be separated. And so God's glory is on display in the church. And that's exactly what he's been saying for all of chapter 2. That God's manifold wisdom is on display in this one new man. Remember Jew, Gentile, those who are united to Jesus. God's wisdom is on display in this new community. And so those, those who are, whether Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. It's those who have put their faith in Christ, are united to Christ. They are members of his body, members in whom Christ himself dwells. And Paul says, to, to him alone be the glory throughout all generations forever. And ever. And so with this doxology, with this closing, Paul ends the first half of his letter to the Ephesians. 
And he does so by sounding a note that is run throughout. Namely, he ends by praising God for his astounding work that's been done in Christ Jesus. It's been all about the work that God's done through Jesus, all of Ephesians up to this point. And so that's what he ends on, to, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ now and forever. And so let me, let me close with, with this final point of application. And I want to just close with a simple point. It's been the theme of this sermon, the main idea of this passage, and simply this, that we should pray for God's power to be at work in our lives. God-sized prayers are simply saying, God, do things in my life that only you can do. We should pray God-sized prayers, and we should pray for God's power to be at work in our lives. And so first, recognize that you need God's work. You need God's power to accomplish God's will in your life, but also recognize that you should ask God to do it. I mean, as, as we've seen, we, myself included, we are weak, vulnerable people who were once dominated, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we were once dominated by the power of sin and the power of the prince of the power of air. But now, in Christ, we've been rescued from these overwhelming influences by a powerful, redemptive hand of God. But God, who's rich in mercy, you're saved, you're alive because of the power of God that has raised you from the dead. And so as those who've been raised to new life, we still desperately need the power of God to repulse the influence of sin and to repulse the devil and to repulse the world as we aim to live lives that we're called to live. And so we ought to pray God-sized prayer because we need God. We need God. So let us aim to pray God-sized prayers. Would you bow with me as we, as we pray?